Welcome to the Theology of Work podcast. This episode features the second talk of Andy Mills' five-part series on faith and work. Andy Mills is the former CEO of the Thompson Financial and Professional Publishing Unit of the Thompson Corporation, and he currently serves as the co-chairman of the Theology of Work project. The Theology of Work project exists to provide a biblical perspective on faith and work. Find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at TheoWorkProject, and visit us at our home on the web, theologyofwork.org. Here's Andy Mills. God has a big uh, process that's taking place. God is involved in a very large process. If you think about where do we start in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 as the human race, where do we start? In a garden, right? It's a perfect garden. Interestingly enough, when you go to Revelation 21 and 22, where do we finish? Not in a garden. We end up in a city, right? The New Jerusalem. So we move from a garden to a city. And God is essentially, if you want to just step back from, uh, you know, the the wonderful thing about the Bible, I was just mentioning to my wife, I I love little things like this. 1189 verses in the Bible, uh, chapters in the Bible, only four of them without sin. Um, One and two Genesis and 21 and 22 of Revelation and a little bit of, I guess, uh, Genesis 3. But we start in this perfect garden and we finish in this perfect city. And that God is actually advancing his creation throughout Scripture and throughout history. And there are things that God is yet going to do that he has not completed. And so, for example, uh, if you think about... um, if you think about ruling or or governance and you think about the development of human governance over time starting from very despotic monarchy kind of things whereby you know the king was out for himself we can see the development of liberty and personal liberty with the feudal systems and the lords and then eventually freedom for individuals and moved on and all the way now through democracy I mean in the way we rule ourselves God has been changing his creation And we have been his instruments of doing that over time. If you look, for example, at uh, economic development, um, we can think about economic development being historically self-sustaining. Traditionally, economic development was self-sustaining agriculture, right? Everybody had their own plot of land. Everybody developed and grew their own crops, and that was basically all. And then obviously over time, we started to move to industrialization, to Adam Smith, the specialization, globalization, all the kinds of things that we see today, the economic systems and the the means of production have changed dramatically over the period of time, which obviously have benefited people in the sense that you now have more goods and services and more things available to you because of the way that system of economics works than you would have done if we'd remained in an agricultural, agrarian, self-sustaining kind of community. You think about developments in things like um, medicine, how far we have come and how much we've understood by reverse engineering the human body and some of the things that we understand as disease and, and those kinds of things. How far have we come? And it's interesting, we look back at old medical technology, you know, all of a sudden somebody had a problem and they would bleed them for a while, right? Or they put leeches on them uh, to suck blood out of them. We sit there now and go, oh, you know, barbaric but it was used as a time and people learned over a period of time to do different things. I, I sometimes I'm interested to think about in 50 years when people look at what we do today, for example, with things like chemotherapy, whether they'll say, wow, you introduced what into the body to do what? You know, they'll, we'll figure out better ways of doing things over a period of time. But medical development is moving through this creation as God is, is, is developing these things through there. Education, justice, You can go through each of these and think about the impact of each of these things. And also products and services, the things that we have today, the things that we use, the things that are provided to us to make our life more enjoyable, more complete. The longevity of our life is extended in all of those ways. These are things that have been going on through this period of time and moving towards from the perfect garden to the perfect city. Having said that, There are some characteristics of the perfect city and the perfect garden that still remain the same. We are with God in those places. I think it was pointed to uh, in one of the uh, 
uh, the, the speeches already, the plenary speeches in chapel, you know, look forward to that time where we will walk, we will be with God. Those places are without sin. Those places have abundance. They have fellowship. And yes, they have work. Both the perfect garden and the perfect city have work. And they have those things in common. And we're kind of in this middle period where God is moving his creation from that perfect garden to that perfect city. So that's the first thing I really want you to get a a grasp of is the big picture of what God is doing across all of this. The second thing, and by the way, when we talk about cities, um, one of the things that's interesting, I think it was 2010, might have been 2009, was the first time in the history of mankind that more people lived in cities than lived in rural areas. That transition has taken place. And we're going to see an acceleration of that place now, of that pace, of more and more people being born in the cities, more and more people moving out of the rural areas, more and more people coming into the cities. And as Christians... One of the things that we really need to understand is the city. Because that's where people are. That's where people increasingly are going to be. That's where decisions are made. That's where businesses are formed. That's where schools, communities are. Uh, That's where politics and laws are decided. They're decided in the city. And I think one of the things that's interesting, if you look at the history of uh, evangelicalism, for example, in the 20th century in America, is in the early 20th century evangelicals left the city for the suburbs. They wanted to move away from the mess of the cities because the cities were messy. And they moved, we moved into the suburbs. And I would argue we've remained in the suburbs while the rest of society has moved on and grown up in the cities. And that's where all the action is today. There are some cities that I think are more Christian than others. You can put it that way. These are sort of hard judgments. But we think about Orlando. We think about Colorado Springs. You know, there are the kinds of cities you say, well, that's the sort of city I'd like to go live at because there's a lot of Christians there. And that's true. But on the other hand, if you ask the question, where are all the decisions being made in the world today? They're in places like New York. They're in places like San Francisco, Los Angeles, Boston, Washington. The places that we have as our capitals, if you will, or our major cities are not the place that the secular world has its major major centers and the places where the decisions are being made. And I think one of the things that we're called to increasingly now as Christians, I think, is to think about how we re-engage the cities and how we think about going back in to have an impact from this withdrawal that we've had. So God has this great plan that he's working on. The cities are going to become increasingly important. They are important. They're going to be increasingly populated. And I think as as citizens, what we have to think about is not the flight to the suburbs, but we have to think about the return to the city and how we impact that city. Okay, so that's the first thing that's going on. The second thing that's going on, I'd say this. And let's open our scriptures, if you would, to Genesis chapter 2. Let's just look at some... um, Let's look at some scripture here so I can make this point. And the point that I want to make is simply this. For whatever reason, and one of these days it will be great to ask God this question, although by the time I get to heaven, I know everybody has all these questions they want to ask God. I think when I get to heaven, I'm just going to fall flat in my face. I don't know. I think the questions will be gone. But here's an interesting question while I think about it. Is for whatever reason... God has decided to use us, humankind that he created, as part of his creative, as, as, as instruments of this creative process that he's involved in. Nobody else. He's chosen us and created us to be part of this process. Look with me at chapter 2 and go to verse 4. I'm just going to read a little bit here. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So, okay, so this is the account. This is the second account. We've had the account in Genesis 1. Now we here we move to the account in Genesis 2. Verse 5. And no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. Okay, so the situation is God has created, but he's got a creation that is not productive. It's barren. And he's now going to go on and describe two reasons why it's barren. These are interesting reasons. The first one, if you go on, it said, the first one is, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. 
Okay, we all sit there and say, okay, earth is barren, it's a creation, there's no plants, there's no shrubs. One of the reasons is God has not sent water. We understand that. No water, no plants, no growth. We get that. But then we move on to the second, the second thing. And there was no man to work the ground. Two reasons that, produ- that, that creation was not productive. One, God has not brought the rain. Two, there was no man to work the land. Now, just a minute. Does God need man to work the land to make it productive? No, he could do anything he wanted, right? But in, for whatever reason, God has chosen, and starts right here, that man was going to be his instrument of making his creation productive. I want you to begin to see this calling, the height of this calling that work is. God's created this creation. He's ready to go. He hasn't bought the reins yet, but he also hasn't created man. Because man, we, are his instruments of making his creation productive. By the way, I hope this morning that through as we talk about these things, you'll just get a different, just a, maybe an upside-down view of work in terms of a vision for what God has for us in work. So then God solves that problem um, in, in, in verse 6, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground, and famous uh, passage 2-7 obviously is the creation of man. So creation is unproductive for these two reasons. Chapter, uh, verse 6 and verse 7, God solves both those problems. He brings the water and he creates man. Now let's go on and let's just jump ahead a little bit to 2.15 because it then describes where they were and, uh, and, and the garden. But then they go on to the verse, verse 15. And the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Okay, this is before the fall. This is when everything is going swimmingly well. This is when the man that God has created is there and is, is ready to do things. The first thing that God gives that man to do is to work and tend the garden. I think it's interesting, whenever you see, and we'll look at another passage either today or tomorrow, um, tomorrow when God uses multiple words, you have to look at all of the words. And I think it's very interesting here that God's words are to work and to tend the garden. And I think one of the things we need to think about is that working, I think we all understand, working is to make it productive. Tending is to take care of it. So I think there is a mandate there for all of us not only to work his creation and make it productive, but also to take care of it. Uh, I am not an environmental crazy, um, but I just think we have a responsibility with God's creation as we steward God's creation is take care of it. And right here in Genesis 2.15, we find that admonition, work it and tend it, take care of it, look after it. So the first thing that God has done with this man that he's grown, he's, uh, creation was unproductive, he creates man and he says, here's the garden, work and tend it. Work it and tend it. Make it productive and look after it. And then the first thing that we see man doing goes on to 2.19. If you go down to 2.19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. Wouldn't you love to have been there? Isn't that fun? Walking through the garden and all of a sudden an elephant goes by and Adam goes, elephant. I'm not, it doesn't quite work that way, obviously. I'm not sure the language, and, and, but it's unbelievable. And the thing that's unbelievable to me is that God watched. You know, he didn't sit there and say, that's not an elephant. That's a giraffe, you idiot. You know, I mean, that was an elephant. That's a lion. That's a whatever it might be, a cheetah. And God just watched. It's interesting today as we think about doing our work, do you have a sense that God is watching And is he pleased with what we're doing? God's sitting here watching. But more than that, he's giving man a very clear right to begin to name the creatures of his creation, to become part of that creative process. Not just to work and to tend, 
because that's a kind of a hard work servanthood type of thing, but also to be sort of part of the process of creation, starting to name it, being alongside God. I mean, God didn't hand all these animals already named and said, I've given you everything you need, now just look after it. He said, yeah, I want you to work in 10, but come along. Let's start together. Name these animals. Begin to work with me. You know, I think to call us co-creators of God's creation is a little too far. But we're much more than just laborers in his vineyard. There's something here about his transition and his giving us the right as him the owner. We are much more than just workers in his vineyard. We are working with him. We're his partners as we develop creation and as we make creation productive for ourselves, for our own purposes, for the expression of our productive capabilities and our, uh, our own psychologies, but also for the benefit of, of others and for the benefit of humankind. I think this is a fascinating passage. And what I, what I want us to take out of it is this really is the cultural mandate. This is really what God, at the beginning, said to us, and it is still relevant today. We have, we have the same mandate from God today. Work and tend the garden. Create with me. And the recognition that if we don't do that, it won't be as productive as it should be. What an unbelievable responsibility, but what an unbelievable privilege and pleasure. The third point. So the first point is God has got this incredible story that he's writing. The second point is, for whatever reason, and that's the question I ask him, why did he choose us? But for some reason he said, you, mankind, are my instruments to make my creation productive. And the third thing is, he's endowed us all, he's, he's created us in his image, and he's endowed us with gifts to be able to do the things that he has planned for us. You know, Ravi describes this as the reflective splendor, I think, that he talked about in that uh, first uh, sermon that he gave us on Sunday morning. And I think it's interesting, um, my wife and I were talking about this, but she said, you know, when we apply these gifts, that's when we're the most productive, and when they're the most productive, that's when I feel the most meaningful. And I think there's an alignment around that, which is... God has tasks for us to do. He provides us with gifting. When we're using those gifts aligned with what he wants us to be doing, that's when meaning and that's when contentment and joy is is our attitude in our workplace. When we're fighting against our gifting, when we're fighting against what it is that God has for us, you know, and we're, we're, we're just not aligned with God's best for us, that's when we're struggling. We're never, we're never feeling content. There's got to be something more for us. This is not who I am. I work with some people uh, in, um, in Boston. It's an organization that uh, basically takes uh, senior executives that have been either, they've either sold their company and are thinking about what next, or they've been let go and they're having to sort of retool and get ready for the next, uh, the next assignment. And one of the things they do is they take them all the way back to their childhood. Talking about connecting men, head to heart, this is an interesting experience for them. But to go right the way back to their childhood and say, as a kid, what were the things you liked? What were the things you were good at? What were the things you did? And the reality is, for many of these men, some of whom have been successful and others who have been less successful, often there is a complete disconnect with what they have spent 30 years of their life doing in the workplace and how God has gifted them. And, and what this, what this rethink opportunity gives them is an opportunity to say, maybe I shouldn't be an accountant, maybe I should be an artist. Maybe I really should have done X instead of Y. And it's just interesting to me, when we get that wrong, when we fight against the way God has gifted us and and skilled us, uh, I I think we're constantly just out of alignment with what God has for us in the things things he wants us to do. Three things about gifting. Number one is gifts come from the Spirit. One of the best examples in the Bible of that is uh, Exodus 31. You all know the story of Bezalel. Bezalel was gifted by the Holy Spirit to be able to do all the special work necessary to create all the wonderful artifacts 
and the curtain and all the things that went into the uh, first tabernacle. Uh, and the, the scripture is very clear that that gifting descended upon him and he was able to do all those wonderful things to the glory of God. In other words, God gifted him through a, spir- a spiritual gifting to be able to do work as an artisan to create wonderful um, uh, artifacts that gave glory to God in his tabernacle. I think the second thing is that gifts are different. Uh, everybody's gifts are different. If we sat and did an inventory in this room, there'd be some similarities, but there'd be a lot of very, very different sets of gifting. You see that in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, where you see the different gifts of the Spirit that can be uh, given. Uh, you also see that uh, in um, uh, first, uh, Romans 12. So 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, 6 through 8. We'll give you those examples of where gifts are different. We all receive different gifts. By the way, one of the things that I I encourage us not to be involved in is gift envy. Uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes I look at someone and say, wow, I wish I had that gift. Uh, Wouldn't that be great? You know, one of the things that we have to be satisfied with, because it's his perfect plan for us, is be satisfied with the gifts that God's given us. Because if we have those gifts and we use those gifts, he's going to deliver us to a place of contentedness and of production and of fulfillment that will be sublime. I'll use that word. It won't just be pretty. It will be sublime. (laughs) You know, one of the things as parents we spend our time doing is observing our children, right? What are they gifting? We can see some of that gifting from, you know, ever since you were three, you did this. Encourage kids. Grandparents here, as you watch your grandchildren, encourage your kids. Affirm them in those gifts. As I spend time with students, uh, typically, you know, anywhere between 12 and 30, depending on where they are in grad school and undergraduate and this, that, and the other, one of the questions that I'm asked all the time is, how do I figure out what my gifting is? There's a real desire to know gifting, but there's a real difficulty on, on the part of people to understand what that gifting looks like. I think as, as parents and grandparents and friends, we can help people. When we see people with a gift, let's affirm them. Let's tell them what that gift is. Do you know you have a gift of... You know, my gift is discouragement, but no. I don't. <laughs> At least that was, that's what my friends tell me. No. Um, but let's tell them what that gifting is because they may not know. You know, sometimes the thing that you do easily that you don't think is difficult is your gifting. <laughs> and you say to someone, wow, that was amazing how you did that. And they say, did what? Well, did that. And they say, well, that's nothing. Yeah, that's nothing because it's, it's your gift. For me to do that, that would be really difficult. And you just did it like that. That's gifting. But people don't see it. So encourage people in their gifting because if we're not walking in our gifting, then we're outside the will of God for our lives. It's as simple as that. And this is a community. You know, the Christian life is a community life. Let's help each other get to the places that God wants us to get without envy to encourage them. Third thing I want to say is they're equal. If you go to Matthew 25 and you look at the story of the talents, and we'll look at this a little later, you remember that there are different levels of talents given away. Uh, Five, two, and one, ten, and five, depending if you look at Matthew, Luke, and this, that, and the other. But different talents, but when the the two came back with their increase, they get exactly the same reward. And I think God looks at that and basically is well done, good and faithful. I think God looks at that and says, look, whatever I give you is what I've given you. The question is, what do you do with what I've given you? It doesn't matter what somebody else has. That's the gifting I've given you. That's the gifting I've given somebody else. Those gifts are equal. We shouldn't look at each other. We certainly, if we have a lot of gifts, we shouldn't look down at people that have fewer in our mind. Uh, I think that's somewhat arrogant that often we think that way. Look at the gifts I've got versus the gifts somebody else has got. But those gifts are equal. What God is interested in is what did you do with the gift that I gave you? Have you used that to the fullest extent? And it's by doing that you'll have achieved, again, his calling on your life. I want to give you... uh, You know, I, I, I... 
I want to give you an example from my own career about how understanding the nature of people and human beings and the understanding of gifting really changed the way I ran a business. Uh, you may remember that yesterday I said I, become, I became a Christian already as a CEO, and it was like, whoops, now what do I do? Uh, how do I do things differently? Um, one of the first things I think God pressed on me was to think differently about people. When you're an entrepreneur and you're building entrepreneurial companies and you're not a Christian, one of the things you think about is how do I get the most out of people without paying them the least? You don't have much money. You don't uh, have a lot of resources. You've got to get a lot done. So what you typically do is you hire a bunch of young people uh, you know, who you're going to pay lower amounts to anyway. You promise them stock options. You give them stock options, which may become very valuable at some point, but they may not. And it's basically a sort of your, it's a future promise on something if it goes well, but it doesn't cost you cash currently. And uh, you, cash is king, and you're trying to do as much as you can with a limited amount of, of resources. And that's how I'd live my life. I mean, trying to get as much out of people as I could, basically, and had been successful at it. And all of a sudden, this inconvenience called Christianity came along, and I, I had to look at it and say, wow, is that really what God would have for me? And I started to understand, as I read Scripture, I started to understand the nature of human beings and the nature of gifting and the fact that uh, we are all in the image of God and, and the capability, the unbelievable capability that people have. And I was in a business that's an intellectual, it's, a, it's the information business, it's an intellectual property business. It's, you know, it's not a big asset business. It, what you think about and how people develop ideas, that's where the, that's where the, uh, the benefit comes from. And I started to to say, you know, if people are created in the image of God and they've got gifting, then what I've got to do is I've got to nurture people within my organization because it's, they're the most important asset that I have. And instead of thinking about it as a way to get a certain amount of work out of somebody for the, less, the least cost, why don't I think about how do I basically transform that thinking so that actually I put people in positions that they can use the gifting that they've already got to the best of their ability so that it brings more benefit to the organization as a whole and to them as individuals. And so one of the things that we, we started to build very quickly was a, a very um, act, active, peop, what we call people strategy. So as we built the company strategy, what we had to do, we wanted to match it with the people strategy. Who did we need to have to do those things? We started doing things like, you know, everybody has sort of job descriptions. This is what the job looks like. Go fit into that job. What we tried to do is we started to try and profile people in terms of who would do those jobs better. So, for example, a customer support job on a telephone, um, you can say, okay, we can pay, you know, this was back a bunch of years, we can pay $25,000 for a person. So let me just go and find anybody who will take a job for $25,000. That's the one way of filling that seat. The other way of filling that seat is to say, let me find people who actually are gifted so that when they, when they sit on telephones with people, actually enjoy that and actually enjoy solving problems versus someone like me who would be irritated and, you know, want to get off the phone as quickly as possible. Square pegs, round holes. So we tried to try and work with people. We tried to inventory all these jobs. We tried to profile what kinds of people would work better in those kinds of environments. Another area that we worked on was uh, what we call the individual contributor. This happens particularly in the technology world. You can take great... Um, systems people. You take great programmers and you can make them managers. And, you know, the old argument is, you know, the old line is you lose a very good programmer and you get a lousy manager as a result of that. Some people are just not capable. They don't want to. They don't have the skills to move into management. They just, they're, they're just phenomenal systems engineers or they're phenomenal programmers and that's what they want to do. And so what we created is recognizing that. The problem was, you know, within a corporation, everybody looks to you know, the hierarchy, and are you moving up? And if you're not moving up, then people look to move out. And if I can't make them a manager, then I, they're at risk because they're highly valuable in the marketplace. So we, we created a special role called individual contributor, whereby we would say, we recognize that your contribution to the company is, as the corporation is, is an individual. We'll never give you a group to manage, but you are very valuable to us, and we will give you compensation and status equivalent as if you were going up through the ranks as a manager. You would attend all the senior executive briefings. You would attend, you know, all of the sort of the privileges of rank, if you will, would come to you. 
but we want you to stay and do what you're best at, which is being a, you know, a, a whiz in systems engineering or in programming or whatever. And that was a phenomenal opening up of, uh, of, of people's capability because they kind of dreaded the, I've got to be a manager next, knowing that that's not what they wanted to be. In, in not every case, but in many cases. So I begin to just, I don't have time to go through all of this, but by changing one's view of a hum, human being, that they're created in God's image, that they have particular gifting that's different from other people, and beginning to match all that through, you know, we weren't perfect with that by any means, but what we're able to do is to begin to match people within the organization so they brought their best skills to bear in a place where they had the best uh, opportunity to succeed. Uh, the result was two things. Number one is the growth was phenomenal. And number two is people were very satisfied because they were doing the things they were good at. And that creates a very healthy organization. And I think for I don't know, something like uh, 12, 13 years, we grew at nearly 20% a year. And, you know, when, you, when you've got revenues in the 3 billion range, growing at 20% a year is tough. Um, but we were able to do that on the back of that. So a way of thinking about people and creativity and what God is doing in this process that hopefully that will give you a little indication of in the places that you're working are the ways that I can think differently about my life and my workforce that will lead to different uh, outcomes. I want to talk a little bit about calling at this point because uh, I would say that as I talk to people, the biggest issue that people have is they say, I just don't know what my calling is. Okay, I hear you that God has got this big thing going on. I hear you that, uh, you know, we're the ones that are going to do this work uh, and that we, you know, we have gifts and skills to do something. So what I want to do is to figure out what it is that God wants me to do. What is my calling? And I would argue that this issue of calling keeps more people in jail, not literally, but in terms of a sort of a prison than anything else, because we're all waiting for that special calling. And uh, let me make a couple of comments on that. I think Os Guinness wrote the book called The Call. Some of you may have read that. Uh, it's, it's dated now, but I think it's very, very valuable. Uh, and he kind of, you know, talks about, number one, that there's a general call to be Christians, and then sometimes there are specific calls, but those come quite rarely. I think my comment on calling would simply be this. I would agree that we have a general calling to be Christians, uh, to be his ambassadors, to be his witnesses, to be salt and light. That's very clear. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, that is, that is our calling. Uh, but I also think that from what we've seen this morning, our calling is also, coming back to Genesis 2.15, our calling is to work this creation and be co co-productive with God as he moves this creation forward in whatever role it might be that you have. So one of the things I think that uh, we're often struggling with and what people talk to me a lot about is, yeah, but real calling happens when people go into the ministry. Uh, in other words, the first-class calling is when I go into the ministry. You know, I'm, I, and I can't tell you how many people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s want to get out of the workplace to go to that calling in their church or that calling in their ministry or whatever that might be. And I would argue that for most of us, we'll never get that calling. And the reason I don't think we'll get that calling is because God has a higher calling on our life, which is to make creation productive and to be part of building uh, products and services and, and working in organizations to move God's creation forward for, for the betterment of humankind. It's not a different calling. It's not there's a special calling for people into the ministry and there's a non-special calling for the rest of us, poor schlubs who just have to you know, go into the workplace to support the people in ministry. That's not what the Bible says. Now, don't get me wrong. I love people going into ministry. I think it's a great calling, uh, uh, you know, and for, for those that are overseas and as pastors, I mean, it's a fantastic calling. But I want us to understand that in the workplace, we have a similar calling. In Genesis 2.15, God said, here, I've created all this thing. Now I want you to work and I want you to tend my creation. That's our calling. It's a spiritual calling. It's a God calling. God's talked to us directly about that. Let's not think about that as a secondary calling. That's not saying, well, I wish I had that calling, not this calling. It's a high calling. 
And I, most of the time when I meet people from the workplace, it's always this hangdog attitude that I've got the second-class calling and I wish I had a first-class calling. You have a first-class calling. God has said to you, here's my playground. Here's my creation. I'm moving it from here to here. Come join with me and move it along. What fun is that? It's called work. Four-letter word, not so nice, but that's what God is calling us to do. And I think there are lots of examples in Scripture to see where God actually really loves watching people take His creation forward, not from a spiritual sense, but from a physical sense. Here are a few. Moses. You know, Moses spends most of his time leading a grumbling nation from Egypt into, almost for him, into the Promised Land. I mean, I don't know if you read Moses, you know, the story of Moses, but, you know, he had his priest, that was Aaron, he was the chief executive officer of the, the, the whole thing. He was moving them forward. He was taking the complaints. You know, as Jethro said, heavens, you're judging too many issues. He's not judging spiritual issues. He's judging, you know, little battles that are going on and disputes that have broken out among the Israelites. His, his, his father-in-law, Jethro, said, you can't do that. You've got to get other judges. I mean, these were the things that Moses was doing. He was running a country, and he was moving that country. There's a physical output that Moses was doing. Daniel, I call him the chief operating officer of Babylon. We'll talk more about the Babylonian captivity in Jer Jeremiah 29 tomorrow. Um, you know, Daniel was a very devout man. But his calling, his calling was to help Babylon to do as well as it can physically from an organizational point of view in terms of its famine, in terms of uh, its productivity. That's what Daniel was called to. Joseph, we find him at Potiphar's house as the, uh, as the head of house. Then we find him obviously um, you know, helping the Pharaoh um, uh, and the surrounding lands for Egypt uh, during the time of famine again. Um, very much a physical activity. I mean, these are the great characters of the Old Testament. And what are they doing? They are continuing God's creation. They're following God's calling on their life, which is to be productive. Joshua. You know, Joshua was about taking up where Moses left off and taking the Israelites into the promised land. I mean, he was all about expansion. I mean, if you read about it, he was all about killing people. Right? He was all about pushing out and physically establishing the land of Israel. That was his primary role. It was not a spiritual role in the sense of he was not the, he was not the leader, he was not the uh, priest, he was the king. He was the, not the king, but he was the leader of the, uh, of the Israelites, and, and his was a physical activity to do that. We see that throughout, throughout the Scripture. More importantly, we also through, see through, throughout history great Christians progressing society who have the same vision of moving forward, being co-creators, if you will, with God. You know, in the, spirit, in the social reforms area, we all know about Wilberforce, Lord Shaftesbury. I mean, on and on and on, you find Christians, deeply committed Christians, who see and understand that the calling on their life is to advance creation. You see that in the scientific and medical pioneers, you know, men in particular who wanted to understand more about God and who wanted to reverse engineer creation to understand more about God. People like Copernicus, Galileo, Pascal, Newton, Faraday. We can go on with the name of Christian scientists that move science and medicine forward. Businessmen. Here's an interesting case for you. Arthur Guinness. Um, the Guinness... Some of you may be fond of the occasional glass of Guinness. Um, Arthur Guinness was a devout Christian, and he started a brewery. Now you may say, hmm, not so sure about that. But here was the rationale. The rationale was that in the 19th century, in Ireland in particular, and England was also true, there was an absolute epidemic of alcoholism, and the tipple of choice was gin. And, I mean, it's one of the reasons the Salvation Army was created in the 19th century, was to go into these places, uh, these gin joints, as they were called, and really, I mean, masses of the population were impacted by alcoholism and addiction to gin. So Guinness 
created a beer. But it's not any beer, ordinary beer, as most of you know. It's thick and it's hard to drink very much of it, from my point of view. Um, and actually it had a high uh, foodstuff um, content to it. And the purpose of this was, yes, it was an alcoholic drink, but you couldn't drink much of it, and actually it was a supplement to your food. Isn't that interesting? As a Christian, you would think about getting into the world of alcohol, but with a very specific plan to assist what was going on and what was a tremendous problem within uh, you know, Ireland and England and France and other places at that particular time. And it led people into terrible poverty and prostitution and all those kinds of things. Think, uh, uh, you know, think French Revolution. Think, um, um, what's the movie just come out? Les Mis. Think Les Mis, right? Interesting. Other business people, Neil Clark Warren. Let me bring you a current example. eHarmony, the online dating service. Oof. He's a very devout Christian. The reason that he started that is he was very concerned, is very concerned, about the breakdown of marriage in society today. And he felt that one of the reasons that marriages broke down was incompatibility of partners. And so the whole point behind eHarmony was to work on compatibility between partners so that there was a greater likelihood that marriages would survive. And built a whole business on that. A principle driven by a man of faith who looked at creation and said, here's a problem, how can I bring my faith to bear in the world of business to advance this forward to the betterment of mankind? And in the missions field, we know mission, missionaries well. But I want to talk about three in particular, three of my favorites. David Livingston. If you go to see the, uh, the statue of David Livingston at the foot of the Victoria Falls, which he named, uh, you will see this, Christ and commerce and civilization. Christ and commerce and civilization. See, David Livingston knew that when he went into Africa and you just said, here's Jesus, and people accepted him, that's wonderful, but they still had an issue because they still lived in poverty, there was still a lack of civilization, the way tribes worked with each other and killed each other. And, the, and, and he saw from God that clear admonition, Christ, commerce, and civilization, a linkage between all those things. Again, Christians thinking about how can we move physically society forward. Uh, Wilfred Grenfell a name you probably won't hear of, a medical missionary out of England. He used to work with the fishing fleets off England, very uh, tough work environment. Moved to Newfoundland and Labrador where he dealt with the um, salmon fishermen along the Labrador-Newfoundland coast. He built hospitals, uh, ministered to them, and, this, and the other, but then realized that they were at the mercy still of the people who used to buy the fish from them who would just give them enough money to last through the year to get to the next fishing season. So he formed cooperatives of fishermen so that they could sell in a group activity and have selling power. He also started to form things like sawmills and other businesses in those communities so that more uh, revenue and, and more income could be developed so that the people could thrive because he recognized that just teaching them about Jesus was not enough. They needed to thrive. The Salvation Army, the first thing the Salvation Army does, it's a hand down before they start talking about it, hand before heart. If I don't deal with the physical need, I don't have an opportunity to talk about the heart need. And finally, William Carey, I would just mention, uh, the father of modern missions as he's known to India, 18th century, um, went to India and founded hospitals. By the way, service and serving others was something that in the Hindu religion was not, was not known. I mean, you had your own karma, you had your own circumstance. To be reaching into somebody to try and change what God, the gods were doing in that person's life would, was strictly taboo. And so, you know, it's hard for us to think about that the concept of service, which is a Christian concept, was introduced by William Carey firstly into the hospitals in, uh, in India and made incredible changes into that community. Men who saw not only the need to be Christians, but the, the, what God was doing 
And what we need to be doing as Christians is, is impacting our communities and impacting our society. So as we move forward, those things are being moved in ways that reflect Christ-likeness and reflect the benefit to humankind. Can you please spell Grenfell? Yeah, Grenfell is G-R-E-N-F-E-L-L. Wilfred Grenfell. There's still a Wilfred Grenfell Society in Boston, actually, but uh, it has some funding. But um, like a lot of these Christian funding things, no longer, I believe, funds Christian activities, um, unfortunately. Whatever you do, we talked about Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance for the Lord as reward. God is calling us across all of these to do those things. I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about retirement because the bottom line is this call on our life is for life. There is no such thing as retirement, in my own view. There is, retirement is in the Bible once. If you go to Numbers, I believe it's chapter 8, you will find that the Levites who looked after the tabernacle retired at the age of 50, but were encouraged to stay along and help. I mean, I think it was a physical issue. You know, you had to be certain strength and ability to do things. But they were asked, you then retired at the age of 50. That's the only thing that I can find in the Bible that talks about retirement. Here's the interesting thing. If you look about the great Old Testament characters, they all were most productive in the last years of their life. You know, I think it's kind of interesting, and why would I be surprised what the enemy is doing? But in our world, we have our learning and our education and our youth and our growing up. Then we have our productive years. You know, and by the way, by 30, 40, if we're not being highly productive, what's wrong with us? And then by the time we're 60, 65, 70, whatever that might be, it's time to retire and go out to pasture. Oh, and by the way, we kind of feel that way, but everybody else feels that way too. It's time to go away. I think it's interesting when you look at the Bible, it's exactly the opposite way around. We talked about Joseph, for example. We talk about Moses. Moses' life actually breaks into 120 years into three perfect pieces. You know, he's the prince of Egypt. He's learning and this, that, and the other, 40 years. 40 years in Midian. What's he doing there? I mean, just shepherd. He gets married. Good father-in-law, but shepherd. And it's only in the last 40 years that God calls him out of that. Joseph, right? Joseph has the childhood. Joseph then goes into captivity. Potiphar goes into jail. I mean, I, I love that story where the, you know, the, uh, the cupbearer is told what's going to happen to him tomorrow and then forgets him for two years. I mean, talk about injustice, but Joseph goes through these hard times, and then at the end, he's used powerfully. David, you can go on and on. You'll see that in all these cases. And I think there's a simple reason for that, in my, again, my view is I believe that with these men and with all of us, we need to go through sufficient amounts of hard times and difficulty to get to the place in our relationship with God when it's about God, not about us. And when we're in that place, God uses us. He works through us. We don't get in the way. And I think we have this youth culture today or this 30s and 40s, this is the most productive time of our lives, and I think... Things happen to Christians that we, we're not really spending our time thinking about God and, and learning about God and the, because we're too busy. We're kind of rejecting the older folks because you're the older folks. I'm now that. I'm the older folk. And yet it's the older folks, I think, who've had the experience, have had the longer walk with God, have the time, have often the resources, all of the things that you'd want to put to bear, you know, all of the resources you want to bring to bear to move creation forward and we're systematically being pushed to the side. So I want to say for all of you that are my age and up, God is going to use you to the end of your life. And there is no such thing as retirement. Now, you may stop working for a living at that job that you did. Yeah. But there are a thousand things that you can be involved in. Start really using, thinking about what you're gifted at and what you want to do, what you have experience. Who can you help? What young people can you, come, can you come alongside? This can be the most exciting time of your life. If you're in the, those middle periods, sure, go for it. Go for the gusto, but also make sure that you recognize that God is also working and have time to work with God so he brings you to that place of yieldedness and that place of, of, uh, of usefulness. Uh, your roles will change as we get older. 
but I think the day, the day we finish working is the day that we're promoted to glory. That's it. There is no such thing of retirement. I mean, can you imagine a life at which the big question I had every day is, am I playing golf at 11.30 or 10? Am I wearing my pink pants or my yellow pants? <laughs> am I having the tuna salad sandwich or am I going to do the turkey today? I mean, are you, are you kidding me? The God of the universe is inviting me to help, help build his creation. What an unbelievable invitation. I mean, do you get goosebumps? I'm getting goosebumps. God is inviting us to create his world till the day we die. And he's gifting us to be able to do it. He's resourcing us to be able to do it. And he's going to give us the strength to be able to do it too. And yet, I look at the Christian world today, and we have retreated. I talked about all these great leaders that have changed the world. Where are the Christians today that are changing the world? Where are we? We've got to get back and engage again. If we don't get this work thing right, if we don't get engaged, whatever that work may mean for you, we've got an issue. You know, Rick Warren's purpose-driven life starts with these words. It's not about you. This is not about us. This is about what God's doing across the whole scope of history. And for whatever reason, He has granted us the privilege of being used by Him to achieve His goals. And He's gifted us accordingly to be able to do that. How dare we say it's Monday morning and I've got to go to work. How dare we say, I'm 65 years old and I'm too tired, I'm not going to do anymore. How dare we say, etc., etc., etc. I want us charged up going out there saying, I am going to impact the place that I've, God has brought me for the kingdom by working the best I can, by using the gifts I've got, by aligning them with what I'm called to do, and by relying on him for strength and power. And we're going to change the world. If every Christian went to work with that mindset, what would happen? Unbelievable things. We're going to talk a little bit tomorrow about how should we work with that as a vision. But I hope today that you just go away with a sense of excitement. <laughs> work is not drudgery. Work is a gift. That's why we can look at Ecclesiastes 5.19 and understand that work is a gift of God. And it's a privilege. And he's inviting us to be part of it. Let's not miss this in our lives. That was Andy Mills on God's vision for work. For complete show notes, visit theologyofwork.org slash resources slash God's vision for work. Join us for the next podcast, which will feature the third talk in this series, How Should We Work?